Welcome friends, James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, and this is the third Monday of the month, so that can only mean one thing, the next installment of our edition of the Film Literature and New World Order podcast series. And today we're going to be discussing two Oliver Stone films, the 1987 Wall Street and its 2010 follow-up, Money Never Sleeps. And for those living in a cave for the past three decades, of course, Oliver Stone is the Academy Award-winning director behind such films as Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July and JFK and Natural Born Killers and the recently released TV series The Untold History of the United States and... As even a truncated list like that would indicate, Stone is, of course, no stranger to controversial political subjects. And uh, his father was a stockbroker on Wall Street for nearly 50 years, which, of course, heavily influenced uh, Oliver Stone himself in the making of his 1987 and 2010 Wall Street films. And Wall Street itself, of course, tells the story of Bud Fox, a junior stockbroker at a second-rate Wall Street firm who manages to get his foot in the door with famed corporate raider Gordon Gecko, using inside information on an airline that he gained from the union president father of his. And the film charts the meteoric rise and fall of Bud as Gecko shows him the ropes on insider trading and corporate wheeling and dealing. And after Gecko betrays Fox on a deal for his father's company, Fox turns on Gecko and helps to scuttle the deal in favor of Gecko's business rival. Rival, the SEC finally catches up with them, and Fox agrees to wear a wire and na- helps nab Gecko. And the movie ends with the understanding that they're both going to go to jail. Uh, Money Never Sleeps is the 2010 follow-up, and it picks up after the release of Gecko from prison in 2001. He's now a speaker on a lecture circuit, promoting his book Is Greed Good, and meeting up with the boyfriend of his estranged daughter, Gecko formulates a plan to raid the $100 million trust fund of his daughter to get back on his feet and back in the game. And the events of that movie, of course, unfold over the events of the real-life 2008 financial crisis. So that is just the brief synopsis, but I certainly hope you will have watched these films before listening to this podcast, because uh, as has been made apparent to me, there are still some people out there who are not listening to or not watching the movies, but still feel the need to to write in to me about the uh, the podcast, which is strange and leads to some misunderstandings, I think, at times. So please, once again, please do watch the movies before listening to the podcast, you will get a lot more out of it. But all of you will breathe a sigh of relief to hear that you're not just going to listen to my monotone voice for the next half hour. We are going to be joined by a good friend who I'm sure will need no introduction to regular listeners of this podcast. I'm referring to none other than Richard Andrew Grove of the Tragedy and Hope community at tragedyandhope.com and the Peace Revolution podcast at peacerevolution.org and someone who is not at all estranged from the world of Wall Street and whistleblowing uh, uh, himself. So, Richard Grove, it is a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for the invitation, James. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I think I was featured in one of the earlier film literature and New World Order segments, but this is my first time being able to participate in episodes, so I'm excited. That's right. In fact, I kind of sprung that on you. I didn't. I don't think I even consulted with you on that, but I did do a, <laughs> uh, a video. Back when this was a video series, I did a video version on The Insider, which uh, stars Russell Crowe and, uh, and Al Pacino, and talked about your, your case in relation to that case, because, of course, uh, Al Pacino and the insider did uh, play a, a role in in inspiring you to con- reach out to the the uh, the real life reporter whose name escapes me at the moment. I think that was Lowell Bergman. Lowell Bergman, and, that's it. And, and just you know, for my part, there's a lot of movies that reflect the the travels of naive people, and uh, the insider was something that reflected some of my travels in life. And Wall Street and Wall Street Two, in reviewing these films, uh, you know, Wall Street was one of my favorite films growing up. So I've watched that many times, and I found it ironic that I ended up in a situation like Bud Fox where I had to tape executives and then, you know, go to the SEC. And then I found out that the game I thought I was playing was there was no such game. That was an illusion. There was actually another game being played. And uh, in reviewing these movies, you know, over the past 10 years, uh, you know, Wall Street and then Wall Street uh, 2 uh, came out in 2010. So I've seen that several times over the past couple of years. And each time I watch it, I pick up on new aspects because of how much I've learned about the financial world and the game being played since then. So uh, thank you for choosing these two movies uh, to, have, to have me add a little uh, juxtaposition to. Well, uh, the, the, you really were the first person that came up when I thought about doing these movies, and I do want to get your take on that. But before we get into Wall Street uh, in particular, perhaps we should just reflect for a moment on the overall oeuvre of Oliver Stone. And I, of course, have listed some of his most famous movies in there, JFK, Natural Born Killers, Born on the Fourth of July, Platoon. Of course, he has a number of other uh, films and, and TV series and, and the like under his belt. And I've seen 
a few of them, um, but I must admit I have never seen some of the ones that would probably be even more relevant to, to our usual subjects, including World Trade Center and W, although I've read enough to know that I wouldn't expect another JFK in regards to that. But a- any take from you before we get into Wall Street about just Oliver Stone in general and his, uh, his general works? Well, I've been a fan of Oliver Stone's works. Uh, I don't know that I've seen all of his movies, but I've seen enough of his movies to pick up the general trend in his palette of films. Much like Kubrick, he's telling you a story about usually American society, American culture juxtaposed to American government. Uh, A lot of times it includes psychopaths. Uh, A film like Natural Born Killers is ironic because Woody Harrelson's dad, if you look him up, he was a – I think he did prison time as an assassin. He was a hitman who was involved with some of the people around the JFK assassination, which is also one of Oliver Stone's, uh, you know, hobbies to, to look into. So, you know, you have these, these interesting historical juxtapositions to celebrities, people who, you know, you, you know, where does Woody Harrelson, you know, how does he become famous in Hollywood uh, coming from that legacy? Those are interesting questions. So uh, Oliver Stone is telling you whether it's, uh, you know, from, uh, from some of his earliest movies to his later movies like W and World Trade Center, uh, it's all a reflection of American culture, Wall Street and Wall Street 2 being you know, bookends on financial catastrophes. But those aren't the only commentaries that he's laying out there. And so I don't agree with everything he says. I don't necessarily agree with some of his motivations or his conclusions. But I find him a very interesting character to study because he's actually applying his mind to his craft and trying to communicate something meaningful. And it's up to us to really sift through that and find the, the nuggets, if you will, and discard the arbitrary. Very well said. And in fact, you hit on one of the fascinating aspects of JFK. In fact, Woody Harrelson's father has been has been fingered in the past as one of the actual uh, shooters uh, on JFK, which is just something that if if it was true, is just something that boggles the mind to think about that the the father of Woody Harrelson might actually be the assassin of the former president. Just kind of an interesting little part of that puzzle. But it's a reflection of 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 uh, Mr. Harrelson, Woody Harrelson himself. But it is a reflection when Oliver Stone probably has that knowledge and he puts Woody in a movie called Natural Born Killers, which is about not so much the psychopathy of the two individuals doing the killing, but how the media and the other structures, uh, institutions try to prey and profit from those, from those ongoings. Right. And I, I suppose the other thing that we should probably mention here is that, of course, film literature in the New World Order, this entire series is really predicated on the idea that these movies really do manifest in reality. And, and not only do they reflect reality, but in some some cases they predict it and they, they have an effect on it. But perhaps absolutely no better example of that that can be thought of than what came from Oliver Stone's JFK, because that actually led to the creation of the uh, the, uh, the, the, the uh, Assassination Records Review Board in the in the mid-1990s, which actually became the the vehicle through which documents such as the Operation Northwoods documents were released. So um, Oliver Stone had a direct effect in creating the actual thing that led to the understanding of things like Operation Northwoods, which is a pretty amazing thing to think about. I mean, that Hollywood at least has the potential to have that kind of real-world relevance in a, in a very tangible way. So that's uh, that's something to think about when we, we look I just at have something a, like Wall Street. I just have a segue before we go into anything more serious. Since, you, since we talked about uh, JFK and Oliver Stone and the 1992 uh, disclosure of documents, I have in front of me a document that I'm seeking verification on. And I was, maybe, I was thinking maybe someone in your audience has some verification. It's CIA document 1035-960, Concerning Criticism of the Warren Report. In there, it, it seems very valid to me because how it talks about uh, Edward Epstein and his his work on investigating the, the Warren Commission and the, the use of the term conspiracy theory as a defense, it seems to fit in with a lot of other evidence. And it looks very credible and reads very credible from my perspective. But the problem I'm having is I can find no direct source of a document. I mean, this is something in HTML I'm looking at. It's not a scan of a document that I can go or a FOIA request. And this would be a very useful weapon, not weapon, but it's a very useful tool of knowledge if it is verifiable. And I didn't know if you had any insight into that particular document, if you knew what I was talking about, or possibly someone in your audience might do the kindness of doing some searching on it beyond what I can do. That's very interesting. No, I, I do know the document you're talking about. I've cited it in my podcast before, episode 50, the other C word, where we investigated the conspiracy theory term and where it came from. And I've often talked about that document, but I must admit, I have never seen the original document itself either. I've only seen the HTML version. So 
if anyone knows where that actual original source document resides or how we can get our hot little hands on it, yes, I'd be absolutely interested to hear about that too. So that is that is very good. And we have thousands and thousands of dedicated and, uh, and, and really good listeners and researchers all around the world listening to this. So I'm sure someone will heed your call. But I, I suppose we should get into the meat and potatoes of what we're here to talk about today, which of course is the, uh, the, the two films in question. So let's start by examining... Well, you brought it up there in in that introduction, and you talk about how these these two movies form a sort of bookend around the two major financial meltdowns of the past few decades. There's the 1987 Black Monday event, which was a pretty major event f- at the at that time in October 1987 when it actually occurred, even though it didn't have seemingly lasting effects on the economy, except of course for the creation of the uh, President's Working Group on Financial Matters or whatever they're called, the uh, the Plunge Protection Team, as they're better known, and. And of course, the other one would be the 2008 Lehman Brothers crisis. And it uh, it was really just kind of a fluke that Wall Street uh, came out just a couple of months after Black Monday in 1987, because of course, obviously, the film had been in production for, for quite some time at that point. So it was really just kind of a fluke that it had kind of hit that zeitgeist at that moment. But uh, in subsequent interviews, uh, Oliver Stone has said that basically Money Never Sleeps was probably never going to be made without something like the Lehman Brothers collapse. So uh, So that had a direct effect on that. That and as you say, that that does form a sort of bookend around that that period of the incredible run up in in the, the the stock markets and the derivatives markets and the the kind of greed and excess that was uh, exemplified by Gordon Gecko in Wall Street and and Money Never Sleeps. So let's talk a little bit about that era and and how it reflects or fails to reflect the the reality of of Wall Street itself. I mean. I guess the, the the question to ask would be about Stone himself and in what way was he tapping into that zeitgeist and in what way was he creating it um, through, for example, the creation of an iconic character like Gordon Gecko, who really seems to have taken on a life of his own and is oft cited by, by people as if he was a real human being. Well, Gecko seems very real because he's a composite of many real people who existed and continue to exist, people who think that greed is good. And to take you through the story in a non-chronological order, in the second film, Gecko is heard saying that greed is good and now it's legal, right? And so what it's a, what it's, it's a reflection of the systemati- systematization or you know, the nationalization, uh, uh, the adopting of Gecko's habits to a larger, wider audience of predators who have learned to copy from him while he was in jail, basically, you know, to tell a shorthand of the story. You could take a conspiratorial turn and say, you know, Oliver Stone was put up to this by the Jesuits, and that's why it's so predictable and bookending these big crises that they're, you know, master and strings and puppets. And okay, that that's possible. What I see, I don't see direct evidence of that, right? What I see evidence of is that Oliver Stone's dad was a Wall Street broker. I don't know how he did as a broker, but I assume if your dad's a broker and he's not working for one of those big houses, he probably struggles a little bit through his life against those big monopolistic fingers on a hand that are attached to an arm overseas. Right. And so you probably see and hear your father telling stories about honest men who are doing honest work and they're just getting taken to the bank by these other people who are predators because pigs, you know, uh, you know, bears eat meat and pigs, you know, eat, you know, are slaughtered for that meat. Right. So you have people in the market who are the dupes, the scapegoats, the the innocent, the victims, the, the bait, if you will. Okay, And you have people that are the game that are actually being hunted by those traps using the baits and you have the trappers and hunters. And what you have is an evolution of the trapping and hunting methods of the, the wolves of Wall Street, to, you know, to maybe coin a term there. You've got you know, packs of wolves running loose with no natural predators because integrity, hard work, customer service, all the things that make a company really valuable, those are no longer metrics of a company. It's now this you know, uh, whim of public propaganda and rumors and speculation and derivatives and playing with things that don't exist. So once, once Wall Street lost the metaphysics, the connection to reality, well, then it's just all epistemology. It's all just made up things in the head. And if you ask, ask somebody from J.P. Morgan back 10 years ago to explain derivative, derivatives to you, and I, I had a friend from high school who went to work at J.P. Morgan, and we were having drinks. It was, I was probably 1999, and she said she was working at a derivatives trading desk. And I said, what are derivatives? And she didn't know. But she's, she's doing it every day. She can't explain it. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. She's like, it doesn't matter. We get paid. And right there, I knew that there was a problem. Now, I didn't know the depth of that problem, and I you know, didn't get into the deepness of that problem until a couple years later. 
But what I'm guessing is Oliver Stone could see that the market had gone loco, that thing, you know, up was down and black was white. And, you know, that that irrationality because of natural law always has that that bubble has to pop. So what I see is that there are people out there purveying irrationality. They wait for people to buy into that illusion and then they come out and say, hey, that's not real. Now, Buffett, who's in, he's featured in Wall Street, too. He has this quote in there. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, I'll have to keep looking for it. I've got a, a bunch of notes from watching last night. But Buffett makes this quote, and he basically is saying, hey, it's not real. And so what you see is for the dot-com bubble, he let people pay $300 a share for Yahoo, and he let this all go on, and then he calls people back to reality. And so the creation of the bubbles uh, is, is a systematic process that they're using to fleece sheep. Uh, you know, I might be mixing too many metaphors here about how wildlife works, but the idea is that there are, uh, you know, bipedal predators that have been plundering the wealth of individuals who believe in integrity and hard work because these other people are making up uh, laws and rules that don't have anything to do with right and wrong. They don't have anything to do with reality. They have to do with a, a, a artificial terrarium that they create uh, of civilization where solipsism, where the belief in no, no objective truth can exist. And that's an artificial creation that is maintained by words and people using, you know, counterfeit government as an authority. Uh, so there, there's all these layers of abstraction that are, are piling up to make those two bookends uh, that, that surround two great financial calamities in our, in our culture, uh, in our recent history as well, because they, they happen during both of our lifetimes. But what you're seeing is the consistent application of this method that's being used time after time, the use of fear to cauterize the wounds caused by, you know, trillions of dollars being gushed out of our currency uh, through the derivatives trading and all these other things that are speculative and are not based in reality, not based on physical labor or property or any of these other things that are tangible and have worked for thousands of years. Once people get away from reality, they can make anything real. And what you had was people selling things to people who don't know the difference between fact and fiction, reality and unreality. All right, you raise a, a, a number of different points there that I think we should pick up on, and I'm not sure which one to pick up on first. So I will just pick up from what you were talking there. For example, talking about uh, Oliver Stone's father, a uh, Wall Street stockbroker for 50 years, and how his stories may have influenced uh, Stone and his his understanding of Wall Street. In fact, that was addressed specifically in a uh, an article. It's a short little synopsis, but I think it uh, is a pretty thorough one. It's from AMCTV.com, and it's under the title Oliver Stone's stockbroker father provided the inspiration for Wall Street. And in that, uh, uh, it, it talks a little bit about his relationship with his father and how um, basically he was raised uh, to to believe in the, the, the power of business, that business was a good thing in the world, and that, uh, you know, it was all a fight against those evil commies. And that's what inspired Stone, in fact, to enlist in the U.S. Army and to be asked and to, ask to go into uh, combat in Vietnam, because he really did think it was, you know, us versus them at that time. And that's what he, he kind of inspired him to do that. And apparently, according to this article, his father used to um, to basically bemoan the fact that there were no great good business movies on Wall uh, in Hollywood, the, the businessman was always the evil person. And uh, one quote that sticks out from that is uh, from, from Stone himself. He says, quote, My father believed that America's business brought peace to the world and built industry through science and research, and that capital is needed for that. But this idea seems to have been perverted to a large degree. The Wall Street that my father worked in, the one I grew up around, is wholly different from that of today. There were no computers, they didn't trade in such volume, and there were no fixed commissions. And on that very note, we have a little clip from the pro, uh, from the Wall Street itself that uh, that really highlights this this thinking and uh, this old style of of understanding on Wall Street. Lou, I got a sure thing. Anacott Steel. No such thing except death and taxes. Not a good company anymore. No fundamentals. What's going on, Bud? You know something? Remember, there are no shortcuts, son. Quick buck artists come and go with every bull market, but the steady players make it through the bear markets. You're a part of something here, bud. The money you make for people creates science and research jobs. You sell that out. You're right, Lou. You're right. But you gotta get to the big time first. Then you can be a pillar and do good things. You can't get a little bit pregnant, son. Hey, Lou, trust me, it's a winner.
So for those of you who have not watched the movies or those, those who need a refresher, of course, that was uh, main character Bud Fox talking to Lou Mannheim, one of the uh, the senior partners at the, the firm that Bud Fox works in, talking about how, in fact, uh, the money that they're making is, is used to build uh, industry through science and research, exactly as Oliver Stone's father used to say. So obviously some, uh, some influence rubbing off of there. And, uh, and that, I think, I think that it goes very much to the heart of what you're talking about. I think that that's obviously an idealization that, uh, that, that comes through there. But at, at any rate, I mean, to, to whatever extent that is an idealization of what Wall Street used to be about, there has been that tangible difference, I think, over the past, well, couple of generations at the very least. And in fact, that leads us into... Yet another clip. Um, this one actually comes from the Wall Street uh, commentary, the director's commentary, in which Oliver Stone is talking about some of his his own uh, inspirations and some of the, the, the research that he was consulting uh, on the film and what led him to his understanding of Wall Street. So Charlie is driven to take greater and greater steps to prove himself because it's impossible to always have a stock tip, an inside tip, so now he's hitting on everybody he knows, including his old buddy, uh, James Spader, who's a lawyer for a big uh, financial concern. All these Wall Street lawyers are really running the system, and according to Buckminster Fuller, they started to run it after World War II. They took most of the money out of the United States. They drained the blood out of the United States and put it abroad. Uh, they call it overseas capital. What are they? There was a word for it. LOCs, I forgot, but it was, it's in, in Fuller's essay, uh, you know, written in 1982, called Higgledy Piggledy. If you ever have a chance, it's a crazy chapter. Uh, Fuller uh, sums up the entire, in my mind, economic history of the, of the world, going back to Phoenician and Greek times, and he brings it right up to the present day. He explains it. He calls it lawyer capitalism at the end. The lawyers run the, the show. But the laws, all the tax laws are the key to the whole thing. And in the post-war years, the tax laws were able to allow uh, U.S. capital to go abroad at a very decent rate, I believe. And it all fled the country. And it stayed abroad. So America changed uh, tremendously in the uh, 40s and the 50s. We became a world power at the same time, uh, a rapacious one, with our capitalist system really into a major uh, theft of, of the uh, of, the, of our money, and it, it was inevitable to me that the, we went off the gold standard in what '72 or '73 under Nixon, primarily because you know we were bereft, we, we were bankrupt. And so that's Oliver Stone talking about Buckminster Fuller and his uh, his inspiration uh, coming from Buckminster Fuller's critical path and uh, specifically Legally Piggly. Of course, uh, Oliver refers to it as Higgly Piggly there. It's actually a section called, called Legally Piggly. And you can find a, a section of that on Radical.org. And I'll just read the introduction to that. It says, uh, Today's world power structure struggle is one between the USSR and big capitalism, which we now call lawyer capitalism, which deliberately took the world's private enterprise corporations out of the fundamental jurisdiction of America. They have kept their USA operations going in a seemingly normal way, so people in US America haven't realized that these companies are officially situated elsewhere, despite the incredible amplification of those great corporations' annual profits, whose annual totals payable to those corporations' stockholders are of the same magnitude as the annual increase in the USA's joint internal and external debt increases. So that's a very interesting little uh, uh, piece from Buckminster Fuller, and I must admit, I I'm certainly aware of Buckminster Fuller, but I have not really studied him or his writings very much. Although, Richard, I know that you have, and I know you've referenced him, I believe, in the Peace Revolution podcast. I'm not sure where I remember hearing it, but I know you've done a little bit of research. So perhaps you can fill in some of the gaps there uh, as to Buckminster Fuller and, and his writings on, the, on lawyer capitalism and the like. Our Buckminster Fuller is one of my favorite characters in history. Uh, he was, I think, fifth generation in his family to go to Harvard. And everyone in this family who had gone to Harvard before him had kept a daily diary or journal. He had the advantage before attending Harvard to read through five generations or four generations of his family's dealings at Harvard and how, you know, how everything went. So he knew the system inside and out. He got there. He made some rich friends. Um, uh, I think it was Astor, Vincent Astor of the famous Astor, you know, Waldorf Astoria, Astor, Cliveden said, Anglo-American establishment family. So he had privilege from that aspect. He had a rich friend. He had a brilliant mind. He was uh, a first person observer who taught himself how to uh, interrogate that which was around him, learning the definitions, 
the genera and differentia, removing the contradictions. And so he was basically using an implicit method of the integrated trivium method uh, for his self-learning. Uh, the best book I would recommend to people would be Buckminster Fuller's Universe by Lloyd Seiden, which is actually a compilation of all of Buckminster Fuller's most brilliant writings, which will then lead you out into the critical path. And the, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of other books that, that he has written. I have many of them. Um, cause I, I, I basically found this interesting character in history and I dug as far in as I could go. And I, I was like, okay, here's the useful information that I can take forward. And here's his blind spots in reading that, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the piggly legally article that, uh, Oliver Stone, uh, talks about. That's a very interesting article. It's a short article. It's a chapter out of his book, critical path. Uh, so you can, you can check it out. It's on the internet and, uh, it's, I guess illustrative of some of Stone's blind spots because he's referring, he's like, here's my source, here's what I'm getting some of this from. He's getting it from Fuller. Now, Fuller saw communism as communism when in reality you've got Wall Street funding communism. You've got the American International Corporation on behalf of the Anglo-American establishment and Cecil Rhodes' last will and testament, that group of people that want to re-colonize uh, America and make it part of the British Empire and use it as a tip of the sword for global domination, which if you look at history from the 20th century, they're doing a pretty good job doing that. So he, uh, Bucky's blind spot is the fact that Wall Street, through the American International Corporation and others, according to Anthony Sutton's book, Wall Street, uh, the Wall Street Trilogy, actually, um, is funding communism. So the Cold War is used as fear to drive the American public. Buckminster Fuller is ignorant of this. Stone continues to be ignorant of this, uh, at least in, in this venture. And uh, the integration of that is, that, you know, you, you take the information from Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time, the Anglo-American establishment, both by Carol Quigley, and you can start to see along with Anthony Sutton's work, here's this valid fabric of how Wall Street actually works. And the international bankers, more importantly, who control Wall Street uh, and how they play both sides, how they're betting on both sides and how it's all about destroying the fabric of integrity in America, destroying our self-reliance, our ability to learn and invent our way out of the problems that we have. And it makes a docile population, which is what they want. They want a, a nation of sheep that they can shear. That's what the subprime loan crisis, all, all, the, all that stuff that preceded uh, Lehman Brothers and continue to have fallout afterwards. That's all there. The Black uh, Black Monday, was it? Yeah, Black Monday in 1987. Uh, that whole scenario, again, was the junk bonds. That's very foreseeable. It's like seeing a tsunami out at, 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 at sea. If you know what to look for, you can see the wave before it starts to crawl up on shore and become 100 feet. And so Stone making these movies... That's what you do as an observer when you can see trends in the market, but you don't want to profit from that pillaging of the market. You're trying to warn people or educate people on what has just happened, what's about to happen, giving them some tangible places to dig into. For instance, in Wall Street, too, if you look at Churchill Swartz, that's a fictional company. But there's a, it mirrors something in reality called Goldman Sachs. And if you look up the articles by Matt Taibbi, you can start to dig into the, you know, like just the, metastasization of the cancer that Stone's describing in 1987. It's like, hey, this cancer, we could see this back here. And the locust fund that's used to take out uh, what is the uh, KZI, which is really like supposed to be like Lehman Brothers. Now, KZI in the film is an independent investment bank that's being taken out by the monopoly, right? And, you know, they could have been bailed out and, the, you know, they bailed themselves out later. Uh, you know, spoiler alert, Hank Paulson, you know, gave bailouts of trillions of dollars out to his buddies. But in, and a lot of people think that's the fraud. A lot of people thought the bailouts were the, the theft. No, the bailout was the cauterization of the wound. The gushing of the blood had already had, you know, that we had already been pretty much drained and fleeced prior to that. Prior to that, through the derivatives trading, through the betting on bets on bets on bets that are in the quadrillions of dollars. I mean, these people just ran it up. Just think about it. They're criminals. They have a counterfeiting machine for money. They, they're not going to just run it eight hours a day, five days a week. They're going to run that 24-7 for the past 20 years. And, you know, this is a metaphor because it's not really money because it's nothing. It's ones and zeros on, inside of their little derivatives trading accounts. Right. And they all agree to this lie. And then they swap that lie with each other, trading in circles, getting other people to think it's real. And it's when, you know, mom and pop who have a shop and they want to take some of their profits and put it on Wall Street for their retirement. Those are the sheep. Those are the people getting tricked. They are they are not the bait. The bait are the other levels of bro brokers like KZI that were buying into those derivatives, you know, Lehman Brothers and, and those toxic assets. 
Now, the other big banks also bought the toxic assets, but they knew that if they were all buying them, that it was too big to fail. That what are you going to do? Start over at zero? Who has a better plan? Just write a bigger check. Here's another trillion dollars, right? And, you know, the, the Paulson character in the film has to go back and scare the president and Congress. And that's why they're like, it's like Armageddon, you know, that, that I mean, that's the deal. They're like, tell them this. It's going to be you don't want to know what's going to happen. Just sign the check. And that's the use of fear and coercion and inducing people under false information, which is way worse than insider trading, which gets to the part where is Gecko a villain or is he a, re a character who goes through a path of redemption? Right. Because is he stealing that trust fund from his daughter or did he put that trust fund there so he could get it back when he got out of jail? That was the way to hide the money in Switzerland uh, was under his daughter's name. Right. And he only does the right thing after he's made two billion dollars. And now he's got an extra hundred million. He can afford to go have a family. His ego is all good. Right. So I don't really see him as a redeeming character. However, I do see that Gecko, the individual, is not the problem. It's the wide systematization of the solipsistic mindset where it's okay to plunder on other people's production. And as long as people don't know the difference between right and wrong, we're going to continue to have these problems and they're only going to get worse. And to you know, nip that in the bud, you define a right apophatically, which means you define it in the negative, which means you have the right as an individual to do anything that does not infringe on the right of another individual. And there's a lot of people around, so just narrow it down to two people. If there is just you and another person, is it right to do this thing? Can I come over and steal your stuff? No. Can you come steal my stuff? No. So, it, you know, when you, when you get away from that, government, you know, and all these other people who wear costumes, these so-called authorities, they are counterfeit authorities just as money is a counterfeit for true wealth and value. Money is a counterfeit. It hides true wealth and, uh, wealth and value. Reason is the real power. Reason is power. Understanding is value. Knowledge is currency. And wisdom is wealth. Now, observation skills, to start out, to tie it back to Buckminster Fuller, is the learning potential. That is your potential for wealth. But we've gotten away from that because we've all bought into these counterfeits. And these counterfeits are antithetical to our needs for survival and coexistence in, in societies. So... That's where I'm at. Well, that, that's an incredibly uh, good synopsis. And that's, that's one of the best explanations of the 2008 meltdown and its real significance. Because, you know, ultimately, yes, the bailouts was just when the music stopped and whoever was left holding the bag could go and say, could go to the government and scare them up and say, hey, look, we need the money because we can't stop. We can't fail. We're too big to yeah, fail. Yeah, so the, the bailouts were the cauterization yeah. of that wound, which had already bled out through the form of derivatives and all these other... Uh, like they're well, they're non-tangible taken place it was just whoever exactly. was left on left on the hook for you know to, right. to pay the piper when the when the music stopped and they got the public on the hook for that um exactly right well uh, the, the, uh there's so many things to say about that but but i want to pick up on one thing that you say because of course you say that that gecko isn't a, a redemptive a redeemed character and you're exactly right of course he's he's a despicable character and he's but the the i think the despicable part about money never sleeps and why it is really so it, it it kind of rankles me um to be honest um is is that in the end gecko seems to be vindicated by the movie you know he 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 gets to he gets the family he gets to go to the you know the first birthday party and and he it's like oh everything's all back together again he gave the 100 million that he doesn't need that's you know just a tiny f fraction of what he's made already on the markets so you know everything's better again and it reminds me of the kind of false happiness of an ending like uh, the grinch who stole christmas which you know, I mean, the, the, the takeaway from that is, well, we, you know, Christmas isn't about the presents. It's about, it, you know, just holding hands and singing and everything. But of course, you know, at the end, the Grinch really does return all the presents. So, you know, everyone gets their presents as well. And that's the kind of ending that I think Money Never Sleeps has. And that's, I think that's the moral cowardice that, that I think Oliver Stone gets into. I think in 1987, Wall Street was, was hard hitting. It was, a, it was a, a more kind of realistic portrayal. And it ended on that kind of sour happy note where you know bud fox is kind of redeemed but yes he's going to jail i mean he's going to do the time for what he did and in money never sleeps i mean gordon gecko he's 
kind of vindicated, despite the fact he never really has to pay the price for what he does and, and his despicable character. And even, you know, Bud Fox's little cameo appearance makes it very clear that he's also been completely redeemed. And now he's just, you know, living the, the high life um, as well. I mean, it, it's it's that's really what rankles me about when he never sleeps. And it, it really, I wonder if Oliver Stone has really backed off of the, uh, the, the high-minded principles he seemed to be trying to, to talk about in Wall Street. Well, I think it's a brilliant perspective that he, he weaves in there, the, the tagline that money, money's the bitch that never sleeps. And in the part where they're blackmailing the government for the bailout, they should have said money will sleep. Money will sleep like you will lose your magnetic control over all these beings activities. They will start doing things to survive. They'll no longer come to work and put your corporation that, you know, on the market for international you know, pillaging of other countries. They're not going to do that anymore without this magnet there to attract their attention and to occupy their minds with meaningless shit. Excuse my French. Because otherwise, your mind would be thinking about creative solutions to make your life more comfortable naturally. These are natural states of mind that have been harnessed through the psychology of control. So what you've got is from going, you know, money's the bitch that never sleeps, this 24-hour ongoing thing that's just out there, you know, generating power that's in an artificial counterfeit way. But nonetheless, these people think it's real. Gecko's whole story in Wall Street, too, is about revenge. He's pissed that no one picked him up at the jail. He's pissed that, you know, his daughter doesn't like him, even though she's supposed to get a bunch of money. And at the end, you know, he invests that hundred million into an energy venture, which green is the next bubble. So he's already like, that's nothing kind that he put a hundred million into that kid's pet project because that kid's naive enough to believe that that's a solution when you have gangsters and monopolies running the planet, right? So there's all sorts of naive propaganda woven in there. But uh, the moral cowardice of, well, Gecko and Stone. I mean, Stone's, I, I, I can give Stone an out and say this. I don't know if this is intention, but this could be, you know, a possibility. The fact that he has taken and elevated your awareness from the crimes of an individual who is, you know, acting like a psychopath to the fact that Gecko is supported by an entire society that is run by psychopaths and sociopaths and people who will use force and, I'm sorry, violence and aggression and coercion and blackmail and threats and fear and all the most horrific things coming to drones and nuclear weapons to put people into capitulation and make them subservient. So he's just, you know, Stone is showing you, yes, Gecko is the microcosm. That's, that's an individual problem right there. That guy's got a problem with his priorities, okay? And he's got a lot of fears and he's got a lot of emptiness and he's lacking substance because greed comes from the fact that you're making poor choices about what you need because you can never have enough of that which you do not need. The fact that you can never have enough money that everyone says they want more, that is an indicator that you don't need that. What you need are human connections and the ability to be self-reliant and polite to other people so that you can live in harmony. That leads to some beautiful things that could be realized by America, but as long as we keep stepping to the, you know, the, the drumbeat of the British Empire and their will to dominate this planet and colonize it and to create a new world order and a new world lawful, you know, ruling system through words instead of natural law. You know, uh, they've declared war on the natural law rights of an individual. And that can only be done in the terrarium. It can't be done in, in reality. It has to be done in these artificial structures created by words. Uh, and that gets back to Buckminster Fuller's lawful argument, uh, you know, that you have these... Uh, corporatized uh, predators that are powered by the legal world. So you have legal or law, you know, law capitalism where they're using words to manipulate your sense of reality so that they could take advantage of you. That's why lies are always being used through history because they get somebody else and that's the game that Gecko's talking about. He's like, you know, you keep believing the lie, kid, and you're going to be played by the game. Now, Gecko knows this because he thought he was a king, but he was really a pawn and he got put in pawn jail for a while. But then he came out and he found the people who kind of, you know, gave him the rut. And he gave, you know, he ends up owning uh, Churchill Schwartz or, you know, control having a controlling financial interest because he's now loaning them money. Right. And so the only redemption is that he became a better gangster being aware that there were bigger gangsters to grow into their shoes. Like he thought he was a big fish and then he's like, well, it's now, now it's all legal. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the, and, the, and to be fair, that the movie does make that point several times that Gecko is kind of small fry compared to the the manipulation and evilness, I guess, of the the, kind well, of that's the, the system point. in general. Yeah. Stone delivers you to the macrocosm through the story of of right. Gecko, which is a microcosm. Right. I still wish that it had not ended with the the happy Hollywood ending, but uh, but yeah, no, I, I I see the point that you're making. Well, on the note of of Gecko's psychopathy, I guess we should interject here that in fact there was a recent uh, academic study by Samuel J. Leistet and Paul Link that of course I'll link up in the show notes for this episode, which suggests that Gecko is, quote, probably one of the most interesting, manipulative, psychopathic fictional characters to date. And uh, this is actually a study that they did of psychopathic characters in various uh, movies and and they go through a bunch of them and find that uh, Gecko is is one of the most interesting and, and realistic of them. I, I find that interesting and uh, of the many things to say about that, I would say that uh, perhaps even his name itself is perhaps quite appropriate given that obviously the kind of reptilian brain is often associated with psychopathy and of course we're talking about Gecko so it all does kind of work out in, a, in an interesting way. I, I wonder to what extent that was all you know, consciously worked out by Stone. But what's what's your take on that? I mean, do you think this is a particularly uh, uh, apt portrayal of psychopathy on the silver screen? Well, uh, geckos are reptiles, but they're not the most predacious rept- reptiles, which also shows gecko, yeah, he's a reptile, and he, he thinks from fear. He thinks from scarcity. He thinks from, you know, uh, tangible, heavy things like gold as wealth, right? Getting back to reason for a second, uh, reason's power, and it's also lightweight. You can carry as much of it with you. You can share it with others. There's no scarcity. It's not scarcity-dependent, that type of currency, which is why they don't want us on that type of currency. They, they want us on the gecko, reptilian-minded, uh, fear, fl- fight, flight, You know these type of primal reactions to harness people, which, again, is why learning's the answer was the question. By asking the question, you start thinking. By thinking, you raise yourself out of the stimulus response control mechanism, and you put thinking back in between there, and now you're a human being again. They have very hard time, they have a very hard time controlling human beings, mostly because they think like reptiles. They think from fear in the first place, right, which is the absence of actually thinking and asking questions, I guess. I should use a different word. Uh, they assume. And based on those assumptions, based on the default thinking of people without reason, you know, reasons like formatting the hard drive, the hard drive itself is just a default. It's chaos and people are confused and they'll go with any good story. And that's how some of those snake oil salesmen like Rockefeller have made their wealth through the years. Because people believe a good story like the United Nations is here to help you. They're going to take care of your education. You guys don't have to think about teaching your kids anymore. Let the state handle them. All these types of ideas are percolated through our society systematically. And so Gecko is just one of many geckos through time. Uh, you know, and like I said, it's a composite character story, which really, you know, doesn't even scratch the surface of some of the ruthlessness. And as, as far as the ending of the film, that again, I'm not defending Oliver Stone because I don't know the man. But for the bankers, it was a Hollywood ending. So maybe that's a reflection in there. Mm, right. No, I see what you're saying. All right. Okay. Well, um, let's let's interject something something different into this conversation because, it, uh, like we talked about at the beginning of this, um, uh, you were kind of the the central point of my earlier film literature in the New World Order uh, video about the insider, where you were inspired by the story of uh, someone reaching out, an insider reaching out to Lowell Bergman to try to blow the whistle on on corporate malfeasance, and that's exactly what you attempted to do with surprisingly different results from what appeared in that movie, and I understand that uh, Bud Fox's experience of whistleblowing, quote-unquote, with the the SEC at the end of Wall Street, uh, the 1987 film, was also part of your whistleblowing experience. Perhaps you can share that with us. Well, without the benefit of direct experience beforehand, you have to go with what you know. What I knew was, you know, watching Hollywood movies, and, you know, I think everyone uh, can agree that's a touchstone because we're surrounded by these, these themes and these myths and these stories being told all the time throughout our lives. So uh, I could also also mix in Goodfellas with that because there's, <laughs> I let, let's put it this way, uh, I you know I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, pretty naive. I went to college, thought I got an education, went off, got a job, made a lot of money. Was still naive because there had been no uh, wall of reality to make me you know take a, a second look at things. And so what you start to notice is you're surrounded by. Uh, Goodfellas, people who are, you know, doing things that are illegal and sometimes they're, you know, taking advantage of other people, not just, you know, bending rules. And then you have the Wall Street mentality of that's okay. 
if they're weak, you can take their stuff. And, you know, survival of the fittest and Darwinism and social, you know, social Darwinism is what you really see at work. That, you know, people who are smarter are preying on people who haven't had the, you know, the, the ideas of reality uh, ingrained in them through experience. And so you're mixing two different cultures. And so if I walk around like a sheep, I'm going to get fleeced. And after I got fleeced, I discovered I was a sheep. And I was like, no, I don't want to be a wolf either, but I don't want to be a sheep. So how can I separate myself from this situation? Well, get out of the terrarium. So, you know, what, what you're looking at in the stories of Bud Fox, um, you know, or Russell Crowe uh, uh, as Jeffrey Wigand in The Insider you in those in those cases you have characters who think they know what's going on they're doing pretty well for themselves and then they encounter something that grates against their sense of integrity that people innocent people are being taken advantage of they're being drained of their life savings can you imagine what that must feel like to work all your life and then have it taken by somebody else who didn't do any work and didn't have any agreement voluntarily with you i mean so, you know, when you sense that in your personal workplace, not just in the, you know, fictional film world, uh, you, you start to, you know, at, you draw from what experience you have or what you've seen. Wygand uh, takes the course of becoming a whistleblower and it doesn't go too well. And I only discovered that that film after I had become a whistleblower and it wasn't going too well. And I thought, oh, I could reach out to a journalist, which he did in the movie. And even though it went well in the movie, it did not go well in reality. And it wasted a lot of time because I hadn't done enough homework, hadn't done enough grammar on who, who Lowell Bergman is to see who his handlers were, who, uh, you know, uh, who butters his bread and, and how he, you know, continues to do his work and what his, some of his alignments are. Uh, you know, as far as uh, recording executives and taking it to the SEC, again, uh, I recorded people doing things that were illegal and were fraudulently inducing other people to make poor decisions that if they had this knowledge, they wouldn't have done. So that's against the law. I took that to the SEC with beyond reasonable doubt type of evidence. And they said that I could go to prison for sharing the evidence with them, even though they were already investigating my company. So right then, it's like when the SEC tells you that and then a couple months later buys the software product that you were blowing the whistle on that has these back doors that allowed the fraud to take place in the years after 2003 through currently, this type of being able to delete information and get rid of documents and hide mortgages and all this stuff, that ability has, a, you know, the, the ability to make documents disappear in the electronic world, which is what I identified. Uh, a system that's, you know, supposedly corporate enterprise level that's guaranteed not to lose documents and be, you know, there as an audit trail for all these different agencies to investigate. When you discover that there's a there's a chasm, a pit, a black hole, you know, in that system that can be used for fraud. And the evidence in the past 10 years shows that an immense amount of fraud has gone on and nobody has any evidence and email trails and all this other stuff that was supposed to be preserved by Sarbanes-Oxley to prevent more Enrons and Worldcoms from happening. So to have spent a bunch of my life, well, not a bunch, a couple years, invested into trying to understand what I was in the middle of and how to get out of it and how to warn other people so that they didn't lose their hard-earned life's work, you know, that, that was a serious, that was a struggle for survival that college did not prepare me for, that my family did not prepare me for because I didn't have anybody in my family who was a wolf on Wall Street. Okay, we all, you know, we we had all grown up there for several generations in Western Pennsylvania. So I just think that since most of this country is rural, and a lot of people grow up wanting to go off to the city because they can make more money and these types of things, that money is there to move, you know, to first off make you think you're poor and make you think that you're not good enough and make you think that you have to go off and do these things so that you can have self-esteem. When really, I had rich parents. They weren't rich with money, but they're very wealthy in what we had around us. And the ability to be self-reliant, that is wealth. I didn't need to give that up and go buy three-piece suits and try to blend in with these wolves, right? But I did for a couple years because I really wasn't thinking back then. I didn't start thinking, really. I mean, my thinking started when buildings were blowing up around me. That, that kind of was a, a pause on 9-11 to see that, hey, what you thought, how you think the world works, that is not a valid map to this terrain right now. And you need to egress from this situation. I needed to get out of there. And that really, you know, has started the thinking that led to this interview. 
Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that it did, although obviously that's not a particularly happy story, but it's it's perhaps the necessary jarring of reality and, and the fiction that we've all been fed our whole lives that, that has led us all to this place, presumably. And uh, for those who don't know the details of your story, we'll refer people, and I'll, of course I'll include the link to uh, 2020 Hindsight Censorship on the front line, subtitled... Wall Street Whistleblower Proves That Money Never Sleeps, which was a nice little bit of Google Foo in the uh, months leading up to the release of Money Never Sleeps. I, I believe the, the documentary came out in 2009. So so that goes through the story that you're talking about there in more detail. But I, I just thought it was interesting that the, uh, the kind of the Bud Fox uh, uh, SEC wire wiretap uh, idea kind of inspired some of your ideas when you were going through the experience. And of course, in the movie, it works out very well for Bud Fox, but uh, not so well, once again, in reality. So once again, showing that Hollywood provides false templates for reality, which is something that I'm sure many of the listeners will know by this point, but uh, it's good to hammer that home. All right, we've been talking for quite a while now. There's a lot more to be said, obviously. I mean, we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but but let's start wrapping this conversation up. Let's, let's talk about any sort of take-home from these movies. I mean, obviously, I've I've put my cards out on the table. I think that uh, Wall Street, even just as a dramatic film, I think Wall Street, the 1987 film, works very well. Money Never Sleeps, 2010, I think does not work quite so well. It comes becomes more of a soap opera, I think, and uh, is much less riveting. Also, I find it to be less satisfying on the narrative level of, of uh, kind of the, the, you know, the lack of really retribution for what... Uh, what Gordon Gecko has done, although I do take your point about the the general sort of trend of uh, the the overall systemic uh, Gordon Gecko, if you will, the the systemic psychopathy, which is I, I guess something that we do start to at least dimly grasp through that narrative. Anything else that you'd like to bring to the table regarding these stories, the way that they're told, or or any kind of other interpretations of these stories, or anything else that you'd like to bring uh, to this conversation? Well, to conclude with the uh, the crescendo of Wall Street 2, spoiler alert, nobody goes to jail. Nobody goes to jail. So that means they're above the law. It doesn't mean what they're doing is right. Uh, all this uh, subprime loan fraud, they, they put those frauds out there and people who are unwitting to the fraud are getting taken advantage of to this day. There's still various forms of these different frauds and con artistry and uh, pyramid schemes, Obamacare, whatever going on today. So the point is, it's not right, but it's been made legal. And the fact that wrongdoing has been made legal in America is not a very American idea. It's eroding everything that's America. So we need to build a retaining wall to prevent this erosion from continuing and then backfill with what they've taken away. We do this through combining intellectual self-defense with physical self-defense. That's the combination of non-aggression with self-defense, physical self-defense if we need now, I don't agree with having to use the Second Amendment because this is not the 1700s and it's not the 1800s. We have to use the First Amendment because we cannot afford to use the Second Amendment because they've got drones and lasers and satellites and all sorts of other toys that they've been waiting to play with. We cannot give those pricks a satisfaction. We have to keep this game intellectual. We have to outdo uh, what they're doing. We have to outgrow the status quo. We have to make a model that makes their model obsolete, and that's Buckminster Fuller. If you want to overcome something that's, that's acting as a tyranny, you have to create a model that makes their model obsolete. And I say, let's switch off their money stream. Let's make money sleep. Let's use uh, the real currencies of knowledge and understanding and wisdom and see that reason is power and that where reason is absent, it is irrational, it is unethical, and it is evil. That's what it is. And then we need to learn to call a spade a spade. When we see evil doing, when we see people enslaving or thieving from other people, we need to realize that, hey, we are individuals. We are sovereign. We, are, we own our bodies, etc. But that person also is like us. And if it happens to them, it could happen to us. So I don't defend what people say, but I defend their ability to say it. And I don't defend people's you know, uh, claims to being offended by other people's words. You also have a responsibility as an adult to check those words at your mental door and to parse them. You can't let other people hurt you just because they say some words, you know, that sticks and stones that does have some truth. You know, words don't hurt you unless you choose to let you let them hurt you. And you have to be able to tolerate that because other people do have the right to free speech. We all do. And we need to use it. And uh, before we lose it. 
Well, I, I can certainly get behind that takeaway. I, I, I very much want to echo those remarks. And of course, reason is, is power. Knowledge is, is power. The, the ability to reason our, our way out of this, this situation that's been created is, is really the power that, that has been wrested from us. And it, they, they continue to try to drum out of us through the public education indoctrination and all of that, that, that you go through on Tragedy and Hope uh, community. So we should talk about the, uh, the, the knowledge building and reason building tools that you've provided there at Tragedy and Hope and Peace Revolution. And I'd actually also like to highlight something that I've noticed you doing recently on your YouTube channel, which is creating a playlist of survival guide type videos, building knowledge about um, just survival tips, which is, again, something pretty basic to human human functioning that, that isn't taught in our, our public indoctrination system. Maybe you can tell us about that and the reasoning behind that. Well, the reasoning behind it is that uh, self-reliance is an essential skill of somebody who wants to live in a culture of freedom. We all need these skills, and I think a lot of people are denied these skills growing up. I happen to have the advantage of growing up in the woods and spending a lot of time outside as a kid, and I tried to kind of uh, put that all you know, in a closet for a while or in a footlocker and store it away while I went to Wall Street because it's not useful there. Starting a fire, building shelter, that type of stuff. But when you get back out into the, you know, the semi-real world where you're living in a suburban community and the electricity could go out, you can have uh, you know, hurricane, you could have snowstorm, all these sorts of things. Or if you use a car, you could get uh, delayed on your, on your travels because of weather, natural disasters, whatever. These situations cause a lot of fear and anxiety and people you know, die for want of knowledge. And it's, I find it's just easier to load up on the knowledge and experience before those types of things happen. And uh, I discovered a lot of, uh, well, there's a, a lot of internet content out there. But what I did was I went through and found uh, valid ways to do the different things that you need to do to survive. And if you have this knowledge and experience and you've got your house or your apartment or your car, you know, in such a way that if you were delayed, you could stay alive, that's going to cut down on the fear. And now in those situations, you can keep calm and start thinking. Because you've already done a little thinking before the unknown happens. You're never going to be prepared. That's, you know, in a situation, in a true situation, because that's the situation where you forgot that stuff that you had, you know, you took it out of the car or whatever, right? So you just have to know how to do it with the tools and then be able to use your creative imagination to go through and create the tools if you need to, or create the process or the cordage or whatever you need in the situation. And by teaching your yourself these these uh, these basic activities or talents or habits of survival, then you're not so dependent if your landlord kicks you out or you lose your house because it's being foreclosed on. If you know how to, to deal with yourself in the outdoors, that's, that's the freedom that exists outside of the terrarium. If you can't deal with that, then you're always living in a terrarium mentality where your, your food comes from the store, the water comes from the spigot, and if any of that stuff stops getting delivered to your local vicinity, you're going to be in a world of hurt. And so... It's not so much about everyone going out and living, you know, off the land. It's knowing that living off the land is really hard work with a it takes a lot of thought, a lot of reason, and solipsism cannot exist in that environment. Knowing that will help us deal with the situation and keep our houses, keep our property, keep our cars, you know, transition over to a hemp alcohol fuel that doesn't pollute and make all these smart green decisions in a real green variety where you could have a you know, all sorts of different industries here in America, if we would just make hemp legal and use it for all of its wondrous facilities of food, medicine, fiber, uh, fuel, all, you know, so the, the, there's unlimited potential yet to be tapped as soon as we can all switch over to reason. But most people don't appreciate reason or think like that until they understand what they would have to do to survive outside. Once you have that connection with reality, knowing how to be self-reliant again, you can continue working at your corporate job, driving your SUV, doing whatever you need to do because you now have this knowledge, you lack the fear, and you're going to be able to make smarter decisions in your life to wean off that terrarium mentality to such a point where we can all live uh, using technology but not to our detriment, not to the point where we're you know, polluting the earth and making people slaves to make these devices. You know, th There's just a lot of reason lacking in most people's actions. And I find that uh, by, by going through organizing these different playlists, uh, that's a first step. It's like the encyclopedia to all this knowledge. And then we're going to be producing episodes to show people specifically how to deal with these different situations in a very non-cheesy way, in such a way that it's practical, it's useful. You can take notes and figure out what you need to do for yourself to adapt to your own living situation and your own budget or whatever. But these are all things that before, 
before you want to go and buy the big screen TV, you want to be able to have the tools to survive outside in case something happens. Martial law, you know, that might be a worst case scenario. Financial collapse, them shutting off welfare or something like that, that's a more likely scenario. They would do that. You know, that's more plausible. And so you just need to be able to think these things through. And you can't do anything about these things till you consider the topic and do some study. And, and I'm not asking anyone to uh, do anything other than, you know, wean off TV, start watching some of these YouTube playlists that I've created. Uh, there's, there's plenty of content in there for anyone who's interested. And um, we're going to be building off of this. So it's like the, uh, the widest segment of grammar that I could cut off the Internet and into a consumable chunk. Well, I'm glad for one that you're doing it. After having watched uh, the uh, video on the self-feeding fire, I must admit it was absolutely fascinating to watch. And as someone who has great difficulty starting fires in nature, that is definitely a, uh, something that I need to work on. So I am very much looking forward to exploring more of that and that aspect of it. And uh, again, this is just uh, an excellent uh, idea. And so I'm glad for that. And uh, finally, I did start today's conversation by assuming that everyone knows who you are and what you're doing. But for those who don't, just tell us uh, again briefly about the Tragedy and Hope community? Well, tragedyandhope.com is named after a history book, which I felt was very, uh, it was a very much overlooked book that held some key ideas that have, uh, you know, panned out over time to be factual and actual. And it's not necessarily the starting point for everyone. So on the site, it's not so much about the content of the book as it is um, a purveyance of productions and media that help to develop the immune system of intellectual self-defense. Uh, our ability to consistently question things, to learn about that which is around us and that which we're interacting with so that we're taken advantage of less and less every day by a predatory system. So we produce uh, the, the Peace Revolution podcast, which is, again, it's an episode-by-episode -episode curriculum considering different topics and, and pro providing you with the primary resources and links to dig into it. So it's a starting point. It's, it's, not, to, it's not you know meant to have everyone listen to the entirety of every episode. It's, it's introduced in increments. So if you're a person with a short attention span and it's a 12-hour episode, listen to the first half hour or hour. You're going to get a distilled summary of, of the details that are pervaded through the rest of the episode. So I design each episode where it kind of has an introductory montage where I cut clips together. Then I do an introductory monologue to kind of explain where it's going. But I act as a, as a navigator and a, and a guide through things that exist not telling you that you know this is the you know this is the biblical version and not to be questioned i'm saying these components exist and to draw useful information and knowledge from all these components but not to consider any of them in their totality because if if i didn't create it i can't possibly agree with everything that person has to say because we all learn different things and that's the value of discussion that is then brought into the tragedy and hope community people who consume our media for free through the tragedyandhope.com website then if they want to support us, they, they subscribe to one of the various levels of, of uh, access. And the general community has discussions and forums and blogs that individuals post pertaining to the content and other things that they find useful. So it's a place where you can get news or you know trade information on various research topics. So I think there's like 80 groups in there. So it's you know people from around the world. Uh, there's a, like 193 countries in the world. And last year, people in 178 countries downloaded our content. Excellent. Well, we'll have to uh, continue to reach out to Antarctica and other such places. But on that note, and on the note of the value of discussion, I want to thank you on behalf of all the listeners of this discussion for your uh, help in guiding us through and around the potholes in Oliver Stone's Wall Street and Money Never Sleeps, and guiding us out through the other side towards uh, reason and self-reliance, which are uh, obviously a huge part of the uh, the missing parts of the puzzle that uh, often are not fed to us through Hollywood. So thank you once again for your time today. I do appreciate it. Well, thank you, James. And I acquiesce to your, your generous hosting of this platform and uh, providing this to people around the world. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who has taken time to listen. All right. Excellent. Okay. There he goes. Richard Andrew Grove. Once again, I hope you'll join him at the Tragedy and Hope community, tragedyandhope.com. On that note, that's going to do it for another edition of Film Literature in the New World Order. But before we go, we do have some feedback from last month's edition, where we talked to Tom Secker about the movie Troll Hunter. For example, we heard from Cars, who wrote, What are the trolls? Well, if I put their qualities together, I come to the conclusion it's a metaphor for companies. These are unseen by most, can last for centuries, grow various heads, grow very big, live in the dark, are rotten to the core, hate people with a higher truth, 
Christians and turn to stone or explode when light truth is shone on them. So for me, the troll is an unchallenged rotten company, something most people do not care about and do not care for, do not dare to see, do not want to see because their lives depend on it. The troll hunter is the lone underpaid bureaucrat that is paid by the government to do the impossible job. This scarred by trolls person works alone in the dark and is kept in check by other government bodies and a very limited workforce. The more I, I think of it, the better this metaphor fits. P.S. I still have to find out the mad dog rabies disease origin. Why do these companies go rampant? All right, Cars, thank you very much for the input. I appreciate you taking the time to give the feedback. I will differ from your characterization of the problem. I think that it is a good metaphor, but not for companies, for corporations. And that's not just a semantic difference. That's actually a legal difference. Of course, corporations are the legal fictions that have been created by power of government and uh, created, of course, by the the courts and uh, the legal system to mask the uh, criminal nature of the enterprises taken undertaken by various individuals and to protect them uh, from the actual uh, legal ramifications of their actions. So it is the corporations um, that, of course, have become melded with the governments and become this fascist system that we're living under. I think that the corporations as trolls, yeah, I think that that metaphor does work in a number of ways, although I certainly don't think that those brave government bureaucrats are the ones to keep the keep them down and hunt the trolls. I don't think that that's uh, the way it works. I think it's more like uh, you and I and the uh, the people, the irate minority, as uh, Sibel Edmonds calls us, um, who are shining the light of truth on these people, not the uh, government bureaucrats who are absolutely, completely in the back pocket of these corporations, if not working directly for them. Um, as is so often the case, like with Monsanto and the regulators and in, in the uh, Food and Drug Administration, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We could go into a lot of detail there. Um, as to the question of, well, what does the rabies represent in this metaphor? Well, maybe it's just uh, psychopathy itself, the, the psychopathic uh, traits that that uh, absolutely infect the, uh, the, the top ranks of the corporations and as a result create the corrosive environment in which the sociopaths are reared up underneath them and rise to the top of those establishments. So that's at least one possible um, alternative. Of course, again, we're reading a lot into this, so make of it what you will. Another piece of feedback we got uh, came from Mac, who writes, Dear James, listening to your conversation with Tom Secker and your mentioning of the Troll Security Agency, TSA, struck me, having got the film from Netflix as a solution to a problem that doesn't exist, perhaps the underlying theme of the flick in the first place. All right, interesting. Yeah, exactly. The solution to a problem that doesn't exist, the TSA. Yeah, that is a, an apt um, description of that agency, isn't it? All right, once again, I always do appreciate your feedback on film literature in the New World Order. So if you have any feedback for myself and Richard about our conversation, I'd love to hear it, and I'll air it um, after next month's conversation. And that brings up the question, what are what is next on the shopping blog? What are we going to cover next month? And I have us penciled in to read the novel This Is What We Do by Tom Hansen. And uh, some of you might know who I am thinking of having in mind for a guest for this episode already, because he's the person who recommended it and uh, whose recommendation I'm going off of. But, well, let's read it together over the course of next month, and we'll be back on the third Monday of February to talk about this book together with our special guest, hopefully. And until then, thank you again for joining us for this edition of Film Literature in the New World Order. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thanking you for joining us and looking forward to talking to you again real soon.